Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. At a time when economic disparity continues to widen and the health of the planet is under severe threat, many question the tenet that growth is the appropriate measure of economic sustainability and success. British economist Kate Rayworth is one such inquisitor. In her book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, which was long listed for the 2017 Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, Rayworth issues a clarion call to act creatively and to reframe the economy by meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. She presents her thesis in conversation with Rod Oram in a session supported by Platinum patrons Dame Rosie and Michael Horton. We hope you enjoy it. Come on, you can't, you, you can't give it to me that easy. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to the Writers' Festival. This is the first event. Let's kick this Writers' Festival off with panache. I'm really delighted to be here. I've been in your wonderful, lovely country for almost a whole week and have learned so much and find it fascinating. And who knew that so many people would want to come and talk about economics? Or perhaps you came for the donuts. There's a spoiler, there are no donuts. They are only conceptual, you just have to think about them. But let's, I wanna know why you're here. So, let me ask a question. Please put up your hand if you have ever studied economics in any form during your life. Oh yes, the economists are in the house, fantastic. And put up your hand if you've never studied economics and you cannot believe you've come to a talk with the word economics in the title. Oh yes, excellent. Perfect audience balance. So we're gonna make this work for everybody. Let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I was a teenager of the 1980s. I grew up on Madonna and Duran Duran and Michael Jackson and there was a famine in Ethiopia. And there was a hole in the ozone layer. And I remember the first time on the TV news that the presenter said there's something called the greenhouse effect. And by the time I was going to university, I just knew I wanted to help do something about this. So I, I had to learn the mother tongue of public policy. Off I skipped to learn economics. Mm-hmm. But after not too long, I began to get frustrated because what I was being taught pushed the issues I cared most about, social justice, environmental integrity, they were pushed to the margins of the theory. And so I eventually walked away from economics. But then it took me maybe 20 years of my career working at the UN, working at Oxfam, working in the villages of Zanzibar to realize you can't walk away from economics because it is the mother tongue. It is the language in which policy is done. So I decided eventually to walk back towards economics, but to flip it on its head. Let's rewrite it to make it fit for this century. And one thing I learned along the way is that economics is not actually written in equations. Economics is fundamentally written in pictures. The power of pictures. Did you know that half of the nerve fibers in our eyes are related to our sight? and in our brains, connected to our sight. So we are constantly looking for patterns in the world. Pictures go into our our visual cortex in the back of the head and they sit there without us even knowing that they're there, but they deeply frame what we see and what we don't see, what we notice and what we put aside. You see, Copernicus knew the power of pictures. In the 1500s, he was watching the motion of the planets through his telescope and he knew that Ptolemy over here had it all wrong, because Ptolemy had put the Earth at the center of the known universe. 
But Copernicus waited till he was on his deathbed before he dared to publish his own alternative picture. Because he knew that by putting not the earth but the sun at the center of the known universe, he was a threat to papal power, a challenge to the church's authority. He was questioning humanity's place in the universe. It's extraordinary what chaos rearranging a few concentric circles can unleash. So think then of the pictures at the heart of economics. And every time an economics professor says to me, oh, you're making a big fuss about nothing, I say, bring it on. You show me the first picture you teach. Show me the picture you show us of humanity. And show me the picture you have of the goal of economics. So let me ask you, economists, what's the first picture you remember learning in economics? Well, funnily enough, it's the same diagram the world over, supply and demand. As if to say, welcome to economics. In ancient Greek, it means the art of household management. What a noble calling this could be to manage our planetary household in the interests of all its inhabitants. And we go on day one straight to supply and demand. Welcome to the market. We put price at the center of our vision. And anything that falls outside the market contract is called an externality. I'm sorry, but if we're going to talk about climate change and ocean acidification and the breakdown of the living world as an externality in 2019, we know that there is something profoundly wrong with this theory. So the first diagram, the market, it's still taught in our schools, our universities, our business schools. It's still talked about at the heart of politics in parliaments, in, in the media, in boardrooms, we need to transform this starting point. What about the picture of humanity? Well, of course, the character of humanity at the heart of economics is rational economic man. And he never actually gets drawn, but having realized the power of pictures, I decided he needed a portrait and he'd have to look something like this. He would be a man, no dependents, standing alone, with money in his hand, ego in his heart, calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. He hates work, he loves luxury, he knows the price of everything. And the trouble with this character is not simply how absurdly narrow he is. The real problem with him is what looking at him does to us. Because on being told that he is like us, we actually become more like him. Research has shown that from year one to year two to year three of economic studies, students say over time that they more value competition and self-interest as valuable traits, and they less value altruism and compassion. So who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. We better be careful when we draw portraits of ourselves because we remake ourselves. And what about the goal of economics? I was never even asked in my four years of study what is the purpose of the economy and what is the goal. If we don't know the purpose, how on earth do we know what success looks like? In fact, a purpose sneaks in unannounced but becomes the overriding purpose, which is, of course, growth. That ever-rising line of GDP that expects to rise endlessly no matter how rich an economy already is. Well, these three diagrams lie at the heart of the 20th century conception of economics. And if we're going to keep strolling into the 21st century with rational economic man as our guide, markets as our central mechanism, and growth as our goal, this is not going to go well. So let's scrap that.
let's start again. And I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of what I think is the beginning of economics that is actually fit for our times. I have harvested it from brilliant economists over the centuries. I've drawn on ecological and feminist and behavioral and complexity and institutional e economics and made them dance together on the same page because I think their insights are where we need to begin again. So let's begin with that question that I was never invited to ask and I'm going to bet most of you were never invited to ask. What is the purpose? of the economy, and this is where you get to eat the donut. So let me introduce you to this donut. It's the one that turns out to be good for us, and I offer it as a compass for humanity through the 21st century. Imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of that picture. So the hole in the middle of the donut is a place where people are falling short on the essentials of life without the food and water and healthcare, education, housing, gender equality, political voice that every person has a claim to. I crowdsource those 12 social dimensions from the world's governments. They're set out in the sustainable development goals and the power means that all the world's governments have already agreed that all the world's people have a right to meet these essentials. So let's leave no one in the hole get over that social foundation into the green ring itself. But there's a big but. Because as we use Earth resources to meet our essential needs, we've come to realize through science, through understanding what we're doing to our planet, that there is an outer limit of resource use too. So we cannot use Earth's resources to the point that we push ourselves beyond that outer ring, the ecological ceiling, because there we put so much pressure on this extraordinary, unique, delicately balanced living planet that we begin to kick our planetary home out of balance and we cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans, we create a hole in the ozone layer, catastrophic levels of biodiversity loss. These nine planetary boundaries are recognized by Earth system scientists for a decade now as the life-supporting systems that keep our planet the home sweet home for humanity that she's been for the last 11,000 years. So put those together and you get a compass that aims to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And when I first drew this diagram, I was really struck by the power of its shape. When I first started showing it around to people, people got excited about a bunch of words that they'd seen many times before, but somehow when they were put together in these concentric circles, something was happening. And I thought, this has changed the shape of progress. We're no longer talking about this ever-rising line of growth. Now progress is about finding a dynamic balance. And I began to look at the symbols from ancient cultures all around the world and what struck me was that so many of them were the very essence of this shape. The Maori koru, the Buddhist endless knot, the Taoist yin yang, the Celtic double spiral, all capturing something of this dynamic balance. And I think there's a lesson here for Western society that actually that line of ever-rising growth, that's the outlier concept of well-being. And we're rediscovering something that other cultures have long, long known. Can we bring those values and that balance into the heart of our own societies now in the 21st century? So if this is the compass, you of course want to know, well, where are we? That's not so easy to look at, because all of the red in this picture shows you the extent to which we're falling short or overshooting. We are doubly out of balance at the same time. 
All the red in the middle is the extent to which people do not have the resources to meet their needs. See there at the top, there's food. That little red wedge goes 11% of the way to the middle of the circle because 11% of people worldwide don't even have enough food to eat every day. But on every one of those social dimensions, there are people in countries rich and poor, mostly poor, but there's poverty in the midst of richness. I see it here in the streets of Auckland as I see it in the streets of my own hometown, Oxford. So billions of people still cannot meet their most essential needs. And yet collectively, we've already overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries. On climate change, that ceiling is set at 350 parts per million. That's the 350.org campaigning organization. We're over 415 parts per million. But we're massively over on biodiversity loss, on converting too much land for human use, and on excessive nitrate and fertilizer use where fertilizers are leaching out into the soils and washing away into lakes and rivers. And I've heard that story again and again here in New Zealand. So this is the state of humanity in our planetary home. For we, the people of the early days of the 21st century, this is our selfie. This is what we look like. And once you've seen this, you can't unsee it. We can't go back from realizing that the way our economies have developed may have met the needs of many while leaving others behind, but have pushed us over the life support systems on which we depend. And we need to find a new way. We need to transform what we've been doing. Let me bring it home in the headlines. The world's governments in the IPCC have told us we have just around a decade to halve global carbon emissions if we're going to avoid more than two degrees of global warming. WWF told us that since 1970, that's the year I was born, I will save you the maths, I'm 48. Since 1970, the population of all other animal species has fallen by 60%. There's plastics in human bodies worldwide. Our children breathe polluted air. There's land degradation, water shortage, phosphorus and nitrogen pollution, ocean acidification to hit levels not seen in 14 million years, and the richest 1% of people worldwide own half of the world's wealth. If that's a bit much for a Monday night, let me give you one piece of good news. I love this headline from NASA. Hole in Earth's ozone layer finally closing up because people decided to do something about it. And we can do something about all of this. All of this is a result of human design. We can turn this around. But in the words of William S. Burroughs, the US writer, after taking one look at this planet, any visitor from outer space would say, I want to see the manager. <laughs> and we laugh, but who is the manager? So I'm just gonna take a little poll here. I'm gonna stand here with my invisible laser and I'm gonna run my laser from one side to the other of this auditorium. And as it passes by you, I want you to shout out loud as you can so everyone can hear, who is the manager? Are we ready? <laughs> business. I think I heard someone say the wealthy cats and a very young voice saying me and lots of we are. Okay, this is an audience ready to take responsibility. I love it. Let's go. Let's do this. So 
I think one of the managers that's managing our mindset are the economic theories that are taught in our schools and our universities and that we all absorb through the way we hear our parliaments talk, the way journalists talk in the media, the way the conversations in boardrooms. So I want to come back and tackle that. And here's the first diagram that I teach when I teach economics. It tells us that the economy is a subset of society. It is a social construct. We invented it, it's a social relationship, and it depends upon many other social institutions, law and trust and social cooperation. And society itself is embedded in the living world, drawing in materials and matter, spewing out waste and pollution. So from day one of economics, we can ask, how big can the through flow of materials and resources be through our economy before we disrupt the very living systems on which we depend? But look inside the economy. Yes, there's the market supply and demand and the state, but the 20th century got obsessed with this ideological boxing match. Are you for laissez-faire free market capitalism or state-loving socialism? And in that boxing match, we lost sight of two other fundamental forms of provisioning for our wants and needs. There's the household, where we all begin every day the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, raising the children, doing it all again tomorrow that's so essential to our well-being, but also the commons. So neglected, we almost don't know what it means. That place where people come together, not through the market and not through the state, but as a community and co-create goods and services that we value, whether it's a garden on the corner of your neighborhood block or Wikipedia on the World Wide Web. And all of these are fundamental to our well-being. I wouldn't want to live in an economy that lacked any one of these four forms of provisioning for our wants and needs, but they work best when they work together. So let's embed economics in the living world and recognize it's in service to human life and the rest of nature. But when we do that, this invites us to reinvent our own portrait. Because when economics started with market, well, here we show up as a market actor, consumer or producer. Are you shopping or working or shopping or working? Or in the financial markets, are you creditor or are you debtor? But when we move into this broader conception of the economy, we show up in so many other forms. In relation to the state, we're citizen, public servant, voter, protester. In the household, we can be parent, child, relative, guardian. And in the commons, we are creators, repairers, and sharers, and stewards. The 20th century reified rational economic man and the role of our nature in markets, but all these other values are so central to who we are, and I think we need to bring them back. So here's one tip. If you want to bring back the values and the attributes and the skills of being an effective citizen in relation to the state and the household and the commons, for yourself and for your children, here's my tip. Don't play Monopoly. <laughs> Monopoly teaches us that you win by hoarding land and extracting rent until you're the only player left in the game. That is so 20th century. Play pandemic. Anybody here a play pandemic? Come on. Yes, uh, the pandemic people are in the house. Pandemic is a cooperative game. You play as a team. It teaches you that we all win together by tackling the epidemics and ridding the world of disease so that we're all left in the game. That is the kind of game we need for the 21st century. And when I sit and play this game with my 10-year-old twins and my friends, we are not very good at cooperating. And it really makes me reflect where in my education was the training to cooperate well. 
because we need this. And it's fun to do it well. So I invite you at your kitchen table, at your office desk, in your student, student rooms to play pandemic and cooperative games because you will learn the skills that we need for this century. So how can we get into the donut? This image tells us that we live in an economy that is deeply degenerative. We are overshooting our planetary boundaries and running down the living planet on which we depend. But it's also deeply divisive, sending the returns of economic activity into the hands of the 1%. Growth, we were told in the 20th century, growth will even things up again, trickle down economics, but you know what, it didn't work. Growth will clean up after itself. Grow now, clean up later. It hasn't worked. We cannot rely on the growth of the economy alone to solve these problems because it don't work. We need to create economies that are regenerative and distributive by design. And for me, these are the two principles that I put at the heart of 21st century economics. And I want to tell you what I mean by them. So here's our degenerative, linear 20th century economy. We take Earth's materials. We make them into stuff we want, use them for a while, often only once, and then throw them away. And take, make, use, lose is pushing us over planetary boundaries. This is what it looks like when we take again and again and again from Earth's sources. And this is what it looks like when we spew our waste again and again and again into Earth's sinks, plastics into lakes and rivers, electronic waste into the neighborhoods of the world's poorest people. I sincerely believe that the children of these young ladies sitting in the front row will one day pull photographs like this out of the archive and ask their parents, did that really happen? Like, was there a time when people thought that was normal? Because it's disgusting. I mean, when we just look at it, what are we doing? We have to turn this around. We have to bend those arrows around so that instead of using resources up, we use them again and again and again and create a circular or cyclical or regenerative economy where nature can regenerate her resources as she's been doing for 3.8 billion years. Put the food waste in the food waste bin, it'll come back as black gold, it's compost. But also regenerate technical materials like this clicker and the screen and the lights, and our clothes, and the carpet, all the man-made fibers and materials. We need to reuse and refurbish and remake and rebrand them, not throw them away. We need to create economies that run on sunlight and renewable energy to send all that energy around. So what would this look like in practice? Let me share with you a couple of companies that I think are pioneering in trying to bring this new economy into being. Houdini Sportswear, Swedish sportswear company. All of the clothing that they make is either made from wool and tensile, which are organic fibers. They say, bring us your sportswear back. They put some of it in a compost bin, turned it into soil, grew vegetables on top and served it to their customers. You're eating your old ski wear. Or they make their clothes from recycled nylons and recycled polyesters that can be used again and again. They are developing new textiles. They share their new technologies open source. Why? Because they want everybody to start doing this. They're trying to create an ecosystem of textile reuse. And this company has worked the first in the world to do an assessment of all of the different textiles they use through the lens of those planetary boundaries in the donut. If you're into this, I recommend reading their report. This is a pioneering company, absolutely with its sights on bringing business into the donut. And then Open Motors. If you buy a car from them, it arrives like this, like a wardrobe from Ikea, so good luck. <laughs> 
And they say if you know what you're doing, you can put it together in less than an hour. <laughs> but if you don't know what you're doing, you can take it to somebody who does, because this is an open source car. It's modular, which means you can put the parts together and away again, together and undo. So it can be reassembled and disassembled. And it's open source. You can see on the internet how to put it together. And once you've put the basic chassis together, well, it can be customized for wherever it is in the world, for whatever it's being used for, an urban streetcar, an airport buggy, golf cart. Open Motors started going down this route, selling cars to people, and then the CEO, he told me, well, actually, we thought, why, why do people need to buy a car? I mean, what people really need is mobility. So now they're focusing on making AI self-driving cars, and here the modularity is really important, because if you make a car, your car will sit outside your house for, what, 22 hours a day? Self-driving car drives for 24 hours a day. So that it's going to wear out that weak part much, much faster, and you need to be able to change just that part. But the very design of open motors cars. I live in Oxford, and at the end of my road is the place where all the mini cars in the world are made, and they roll out of the factory full of air and is shipped around the world. It's crazy. The future is distributed manufacturing, and it means that you're going to be making cars here again in New Zealand. The parts will be shipped, and you'll be assembling and refurbishing and customizing and remaking. What is that? future potential of New Zealand's role in the circular economy. This is the beginning of 21st century manufacturing. So, we need to be regenerative by design, but also distributive by design, sharing the rewards of activity far more equitably than have been done in the past. And here I want to share what I think is the really exciting opportunity for the future. Let me get my favorite toy. Here we go. You see, the 20th century, if you think about making anything from this clicker or my jacket or the table or the carpet, every product needs a source of energy, it needs a means of production, form of communications and knowledge. And in the 20th century, these technologies were centralized by design. Think oil rig, big factory, operator switchboard and patents and copyrights. And here's the opportunity. This century, the 21st century, technologies are Oh, you like that. <laughs> Distributed by design for the first time in human history. Energy on solar panels dotted across the landscape. Wind turbines, including in this village in India. Manufacturing, desktop manufacturing with 3D printers. I could have one right here in front of me. Communications, you've all got a node of this communications network in your pockets, as does this woman in a village in Tanzania. And knowledge, we've got open source patents and copyrights. We've got open source Creative Commons licensing. Put these technologies together. What will it look like when these come together? This is an extraordinary possibility we're barely beginning to tap. And I think makerspaces, fab labs, are where we can see the beginning of that future emerge. They say we share the recipes of how to construct our world. And here they are in Bas Barcelona, in Kamakura, Japan, Dublin, Amsterdam. People downloading ideas and creating and sharing ideas from the internet. Putting together a wooden car and all sorts of new inventions. Now you might be thinking, well that's very nice in these high income countries in the world. But do you remember the 1980s when the only people who had mobile phones looked like this? I think we are at the 1980s mobile phone moment for makerspaces and fab labs, and we have to imagine far beyond that possibility. In fact, we've already gone beyond it. Here are people in Bhutan, in Togo, in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, in Kerala, in India, in fab labs, 
in makerspaces. And this boy in Tanzania, I, I used to live in Zanzibar, so I feel like I could stroll up and chat to that lad. Look at him, what he's using, what he's putting together. The makerspace has brought this opportunity for him to use his mind far beyond the, the market speed or the state. This is a leapfrog opportunity into communities that for the first time will be able to own the power to generate electricity and have desktop materials, have access to the world's knowledge and create Creative Commons licensing. I think this is our big chance of completely redistributing opportunity in the 21st century. So, this is how humanity gets into the donut. We need to be regenerative and distributive by design. But, we've got a problem. Because our economies are structurally dependent upon endless growth. They have been designed to expect and demand and depend upon GDP increasing endlessly. We have economies that need to grow, whether or not that makes us thrive. Dependent because we have a financial system that is structurally dependent upon it. We have a financial system that pursues the maximum rate of financial return. We have commercial banks that create money as debt-bearing interest. And they put pressure on publicly listed companies to show every quarter they have increasing sales, increasing margins, and increasing rate of return. We're politically addicted. No politician wants to lose their place in the G20 family photo. But if their economies stop growing while the rest keep going, they'll be booted out by the next emerging powerhouse. And politicians want to raise tax rate to the tax revenue without raising the tax rate. And growth is a quick way to do that. And we are socially addicted to endless growth. After a century of consumerist propaganda that convinces us we improve ourselves every time we buy something more. But look to nature. This is nature's growth curve. From your children's feet to an elephant to a tree in the Amazon, things grow and then they grow up and they mature and they come to thrive. Can we create economies that like nature grow and then grow up and can pursue the dynamics of regenerative and distributive design? We need economies that make us thrive whether or not they grow. And I think this is the existential economic question of our times. Rather than wait to answer that question though, I look to where leadership's emerging. Urban designers are starting to design our cities in new ways. I was contacted by this urban planner in Stockholm. He said, we're developing a new suburb of the city and we've got your donut on our table as a conceptual blueprint. How do we design a new suburb that meets the needs of all its inhabitants within the means of the ecosystem and within the means of the planet? He said, we want to design the world's most sustainable living districts. We're calling them donut districts. And I thought, what have I done? <laughs> but what about school children? And when one 15-year-old girl doggedly sits down outside the Swedish parliament, and refuses to go to school until the government acts. And people say, go to school, child. But then others start to follow and follow and follow. And it keeps building and building until it's no longer about one person. It's an incredible movement. Where did that come from? These school strikes and how much more untapped human passion and connection and energy is waiting for somebody else to motivate and activate another part of society. This is our power and our potential to suddenly find we believe in something and want to be part of transformation. And what about each one of us? I invite you to imagine putting your own life 
on this table and ask yourself, how does the way that I eat and shop and travel and invest and divest and protest and vote and volunteer and how that I teach and how I show up at work and the questions I ask of my superiors, inviting them to reinvent what we're doing here. Because each one of us has so many networks of influence that governments can't touch and that business can't touch, but we can touch because we're 15 or because we're 70 or because we're the newest employee or because we're the CEO. Each one of us has so many ways that we can be part of building this transformation. So leave behind 20th century economics that offered us the market and rational economic man pursuing the endless goal of growth. Let's embrace the goal of meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. Let's recognize the rich we that is humanity, embedded in an economy in the living world, an economy in service to society and the rest of nature. If these ideas appeal, I invite you to watch one minute summaries of the seven ways to think set out in my book. And if you really want, you could see a puppet rap battle of humanity versus rational economic man. Yes, we had puppets rapping students to their professor about everything that's wrong with rational economic man. But let me leave you with the one donut that turns out to be good for us. And I very much look forward to turning this into a conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. It's as simple as that. Um, but I should progress a bit from that. <laughs> um, first of all, could I actually just start at a family level? Because you've talked about um, the, um, the Donut Economy book as family therapy. And it sounds a bit like The Simpsons, you know, mmm, <laughs> donuts. But what happens in, in a multi-generational sense um, that you've found when people are... Ex um, uh, are exposed to your ideas and, and engage with them? So I wrote this book to try and give uh, a theoretical framework to the economy that's already emerging. Because so many people already work in this space. But until it's made visible with concepts that make sense of it, it's not legitimized. And one of my favorite things that's happened several times, actually, uh, I was once at a, a festival and a young woman came up with a copy of my book, well-thumbed copy of the book, and she said, would you sign this book? My dad gave it to me. He bought it, he read it, and then he gave it to me and he said, I think I finally understand what it is that you're doing with your life. Ah. And that's Donut Family Therapy. Um, there's very often, often, uh, women come up and say, I'm buying this for my son. And I say, oh yes, what's your son do? He said, he's in banking. <laughs> I'd like to have a conversation with him. So people are using it to open up conversations, um, which is fascinating. And I'm really delighted that it gives a frame to the work that so many people are already doing and that deserves to be recognized as a new vision of an economy that needs to be created. Did you ever get a report back from that lady about how she got on with her banking son? 
No, no, I didn't. But actually, a young woman recently said to me, I gave a copy, I, I was signing copies in Unity Books, actually, at the beginning of the week. And uh, she said, I gave a copy to my, my boyfriend's father. I thought that was very daring. Gave a copy to my boyfriend's father, he, and he works in banking, and he's reading it, and he's saying, hmm, yes, yes. Yes, there are things we need to reconsider. And she was like, yeah! You know. <laughs> They're a very good start. Yes. Um, but it is the power of the diagrams um, and the wonderful visual images elsewhere you bring. Um, as you were writing the book, um, was that an important moment for you where you began to see um, these ideas in that sort of context beyond the very wonderful um, double circle you had drawn, first drawn back in 2012? Yeah, so the, the double circle. So I came back from a leave. I had twins, I immersed myself in changing nappies for a year, didn't look at anything that was going on in the world of work, came back to work, I was working at Oxfam, and uh, said to my team, so what's been going on? And my, my colleague showed me a picture of the planetary boundary diagram, it was a circle with red lines shooting out. Mm, mm. And I had this epiphany at my desk, I thought, that is the beginning of 21st century economics, because throughout my education I was told, you worried about the climate, love? It's called environmental externalities, and it was yeah. sort of pushed to the margins. This actually started with our pressure on the living world. And I, I'm sitting in Oxfam, I thought, wow, how can I bring social justice into this? And so I drew a circle in the middle. If there's an outer limit of resource use, there's also an inner limit, it's called human rights, and we're working on it every day. And that turned it into a donut. That picture had more traction than I could have possibly imagined. And that's what fascinated me about the power of images. But then when I sat down to write a book, I didn't immediately make that connection. And actually, I, I went on Twitter and I said, I'm writing a book about new economics, send me ideas. And then I got inundated with wacky and wonderful ideas and I got completely lost in it. And actually, uh, in April 2015, I, I really tanked. I was, I was on the verge of giving up. I was literally sitting at my desk. I had this contract to write a book. I had funding from somebody. Um, I had a list here next to me on my desk of all the people I was going to write to tomorrow saying, I can't do this. I've, how ridiculous to say seven ways to think like a 21st century economy. I'm lost. And I sat with that for about four months. It was a very, very tough time, mm. actually. Uh, my partner said to me, look, just pretend you're going to work. You know, there's sometimes comedy skits <laughs> of a man saying, bye, darling, off to work. And actually he goes and sits in a cafe and comes back. He said, dude, just pretend you're writing a book, which was really helpful. <laughs> so I, I sat in a cafe and I pretended, like, come on, pretend, pretend, pretended I was writing a book. And I suddenly thought, oh, come on, you know, pictures. Is there any pictures? Oh, of course there's an image. Oh, there's an image around that. And I suddenly, in a, sitting in the window of a cafe, had seven diagrams that summed up these seven ways of thinking. And I had about four or five of the new, I could see I could replace them, and I thought, I'll be darned if I can't replace them with seven. Suddenly, when I had these little iconic images, and they're almost like cave art, they're so simple, that for me was the moment when I knew, uh, oh, all the worry fell away, and I think, that is the story I'm telling through these pictures. And I got a power in my belly from that moment that, to be honest, I never lost. I had absolute clarity of where I was going and what to let fall away. There's something about the power of cafes in Britain. I mean, it's you and J.K. <laughs> Rowling. You know, it's, it's where it all started. I, <laughs> but that's a, that's a fabulous breakthrough. And um, the, um, those diagrams are so extraordinarily uh, uh, influential. And it's just such a classic that everybody picks that supply and demand one as, as the one starting and 
for many people the ending point of economics. Yeah. And, and yet it's, it's a diagram that's inherently in conflict and unbalanced. Yeah, and everywhere I go, literally, I can say to any audience in any country, what is the first diagram? I'm taking a bit of a risk there because I've got the answer up on the screen, but it comes every time. The thing that disturbs me is that 17-year-olds come up to me afterwards and they say, that's what I'm being taught now. Yeah. Or teachers come up and say, that is what I have to teach. I'm tearing my hair out. I want to teach those ideas, but this is the syllabus that my students have to pass. So there are so many people in the educational establishments, from schools through universities and business schools who are absolutely desperate to teach new ideas, but are stuck with a syllabus that is so out of date, and I really feel for their frustration. Um, you mention in the book uh, Paul Samuelson, uh, who in many ways wrote up until now the definitive textbook on economics. And uh, as he was struggling to teach, uh, or trying to find a way to teach economics to uh, uh, former GIs after the war in the US, um, he started to draw a lot. Yes. And um, what, what would you imagine you would talk about if uh, you had a chance to meet Samuelson today? about diagrams. Would, would you diss him for his, or would you would, would I what? diss him for his? I mean, oh, say, no, oh, I wouldn't whoa. diss him. He was brilliant. So Samuelson was actually a real geek of an economist. He loved equations. And he believed that equations were the real economist's art, and that's how we should do economics. But he, he was teaching in MIT um, in the 1940s. All the GIs, as you say, were coming back from war. They were going, getting engineering degrees and they were doing a little bit of economics on the side. And he was asked to teach a little bit of economics on the side. And so he made it simple for them. And he said, well, we'll just teach it in diagrams. And in fact, the iconic first diagram he drew of the whole economy, it literally looks like a radiator system with water flowing around yeah. around these radiator pipes. He was writing for, for engineers, but that's still the diagram that's taught today. I think Samuelson, Oh, I'd love to have a conversation with him. I think we'd have so much to talk about. We absolutely share the power of pictures. He, he said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties, so long as I can write its economic textbooks. Wow. Right? He knew the power of this book. The first lick is the privileged one, impinging on the beginner's tabula rasa at its most impressionable state. He thought yeah. our minds were like an ice cream to be licked, right? A tabula rasa. And he was right. When economics starts with supply and demand, everything else follows. I would love to sit down with him and say, Paul, it was missing purpose. And I would love to challenge him over the diagrams I've drawn. I, I really think that many of the great economists whose ideas I'm moving away from, Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, Paul Samuelson, John Stuart Mill, Simon Kuznets, if they were alive today, they would be the first to roll up their sleeves and say, come on, this world is so different from 1776 or 1945. Have you got no ideas of your own? I cannot believe you're still using something I wrote 200 <laughs> years ago. That's right. Right? They will be the first to be right. <laughs> Sorry, that's dead right, but you wouldn't have quite the same conversation with Shakespeare, perhaps. No, you wouldn't. No, 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 sorry, no, that's a digression. That's true. Let's, let's stick with the economists. Let's stick too, with yes, Shakespeare's writings. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, but um, 
but purpose has long been missing. It's becoming completely absent from conventional economics, but is now economics, the purpose is actually about human survival. So economics means the art of household management, and I think that's a really important origin to remember. And in, it was Xenophon who back in ancient Greek first wrote this little pamphlet called The Economist, and it was about how to manage your estate, and do you let your wife run the books, and do you trust your slaves, and all these things that are an ancient Greek you know, man had to worry about. And towards the end of his life, he lifted his sights to the city of Athens. How should Athens manage its taxes? Do we allow immigrants to come in and work? I mean, all very modern questions. It took 2,000 years for Adam Smith to raise our sights to the level of the national household. Why do some nations thrive and others are, are stagnant? And he wrote The Wealth of Nations. And it's our turn now to raise our sights to the planetary household and to see the whole planet as one global economy and manage it in the interest of all its inhabitants. When we start with the donut diagram, it's pretty shocking. All of that red overshoot and shortfall, and you could go to saying, is it about survival? I think it's still, though, about thriving, and I really use that word very intentionally. I think, you know, growth is this ever, never-ending increase, but things that grow and grow up come to thrive. If we don't transform our economics, I think we're in for a very dark time ahead. I think uh, 10 billion of us on this planet imagining that we're rationally economic man, it's not going to go well. We have to learn to be cooperative and collaborative and bring back the commons. But I think we can do more than survive. I think that pushes people into actually a dangerously, like scarcity makes us scared. And when we're scared, we actually become a, a bit grabby and that's my water as opposed to abundance which makes us say there's plenty of water here and we can share this and recycle and reuse it endlessly so I would avoid the sort of survivalist or scarcity mentality because it sets us off in a direction that pushes us towards those sort of self-interest of rational economic man it doesn't help us um, and crucially, um, I'm afraid I'm no student of this, but as I understand it, in that um, ancient Greek concept of the, the uh, economy or the household, um, there were tremendous uh, responsibilities um, to the community. It, 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 um, so it was not just about managing the household well, um, but it was also about the relationship to community too. It was an, an essential part of it, wasn't it? So it's a question of refinding that in part for us today. Yeah, and even Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, when he talks about the power of the market, he believed that markets needed to be local. Because if there are going to be these knock-on negative effects on other people, they need to be able to come and knock on your door and say, the smoke from your factory is polluting my back garden. Mm. So he, he theorized for a small community of relatedness. And actually his theories have been taken into a global context that I think he would say, oh, it's not gonna work on that scale. So many societies have uh, a social component like the potlatch, right? So you, whoever is wealthy in a society holds a feast and redistributes. There are always redistributive mechanisms in societies to keep that balance. And we need to refine that now. Um, is obviously an absolutely essential part of that um, is coming to um, a contemporary understanding about the importance of the commons uh, and how we uh, relate to that resource use together. Together, you know, obviously fabulous work from people like uh, Ellie Ostrom in that. So, how what sort of examples are you seeing around the world of um, 
sort of a, a renewed commitment to the com commons and um, people um, finding uh, new and effective ways to work for that in a, 20, in a 21st century way. So Ellen Ostrom, who is the only woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, for her work on the commons, in fact, she was a political scientist, um, Back in the late 1960s, Garrett Hardin wrote a piece in, in um, Science called, it was about the tragedy of the commons, and he basically said, if there's a, a patch of land and anybody can use it, it's gonna get overgrazed by sheep, and so it'll get run down. It's a tragedy, the commons are a tragedy, you need to fence them off and you need to privatize it or run it by the state. And it was, it became the only thing I ever learned about the commons in my economics education was that it's a tragedy, right? Now, Ellen Ostrom, Instead of writing this grand sweeping theory, she actually went around some places and she said, well, Garrett, it's funny because actually I've been around and I've been to watersheds and I've been to communal lands and I've I found some places that actually is working quite well. Mm. Uh, so it's not a tragedy, it's a triumph, actually. And what you're talking about is open access. Mm. These aren't open access. Commonses aren't open access. There are clear members and rules about when you can go in and harvest the forest or how you can use it and you'll be punished if you violate those rules. And so communities have created rules and systems and structures under which they manage these resources very well together. She was writing about natural commons like a community managing a wood or a well or a fishing ground. And that's the realm that the commons have been thought of. But we have the 21st century commons. It is the open source development mm. online. And that's why I talk about those technologies as being the most incredible opportunity. So Wikipedia is, is a commons that many, many people know. Anyone can go online and become an editor of Wikipedia, but if you start mucking around on the pages, you'll get digitally wrapped on the knuckles, right? If you break the rules, you'll get stopped. There are rules of how you do this, and it's a collaborative resource. People aren't paid to do it. People love sharing and contributing to something bigger themselves for recognition of their skills. Some of the world's best software engineers, when companies want to hire them, they say, well, I don't want this higher, higher pay. What I really want is to be allowed to spend 25% of my time working in open source. Mm. Because if you lock all my time up in your proprietary software, I'm gonna fall behind. The action's over there in open source. Mm. So it's a really dynamic place. And car companies like Open Motors, clothing companies like Houdini are putting their technologies in open source. So this is the 21st century commons that we're only just beginning to understand. And it's not about everything being free and sharing all the time. You can have a common software like Linux Mm. on which you build a business. So there's an interaction, an interplay between the market and the commons, which is gonna be one of the most dynamic forms of entrepreneurship, I think, this century. Mm. You um, often, um, in your presentations and indeed in the book, um, talk about the power of companies, obviously in business, but obviously um, very massively reinvented businesses. And now business, as it's been done up till now, has brought us a good part of the trouble that we're now trying to put right. So um, w what sort of case do you make for business, obviously enlightened business, um, being a very important part of this um, uh, extraordinary renaissance? So I think there's absolutely a role for the market and for business, and I think of it as enterprise, and it's how we design our enterprises that matters. Uh, so when I work with companies and they say, we really love the donut and we want to think about how we can bring our business into the donut, I'll say, well, I don't just want to talk to you about the design of your products, who made this carpet and what fibers it was made for and how much they were paid. I want to talk about the design of your business itself. And I was actually meeting with about 100 
um, CEOs and financiers today under MB, the, the Ministry of um, Business, we had a, a conversation over lunch and I talked to them about the design of your own enterprise. So there are five design traits and you can use this to think about any company or organization that you know from a university to an NGO to a business that you love or hate. You can be a detective about business. So ask yourself, first of all, what is its purpose? What is it here for? How is it governed? its rules, its practices, its principles, its metrics, its culture? How is it networked? How does it relate to its customers and its suppliers? But also, which networks is it part of? And then down to the really meaty stuff. How is it owned? Because whether a business is owned by its founding entrepreneur, its employees, uh, venture capital, equity, shareholders, the state, all of these are different designs of ownership and they all have very, very different implications for the quality of finance that's behind that business. And whether the finance is saying, I want a high, fast rate of return, I, you know, put my money into you now, I want 10 times out in 10 years time, or whether that finance is saying, I'm investing in you because I'm investing in the future that you're going to bring about into the world. So I want to see social and ecological return with a fair financial return. So totally different designs of finance. And when we think of companies through that lens, purpose, networks, governance, ownership, and finance, you can understand so much of what a company can be and do in the world because of how it's designed. Mm. Um, that still very much leaves us, though, with the um, immense challenge of um, pushing back, knocking down um, deeply entrenched, vested interests, whether it be in business and politics. So um, what do you think are some of the most powerful ways to start um, splitting up those vested interests or suppressing them in various ways? Which kind of interests do you think? Well, um, certainly in business, you'll um, get, uh, well, the classic one, of course, was um, uh, oil companies, um, because they've known about climate change for very long time and they were studying it and but they suppressed that so um, this huge wealth that they have created for their shareholders um, but um, over these recent decades when they've really known what's going on so that's a very big vested interest so how do we how do we break up those vested interests how do we nullify them so one you can have a state bring in legislation that says by 2050 this is going to be a net zero carbon nation and I'm really glad to be here in the week that uh, this country is bringing about a bill of that legislation. It needs to have teeth. There needs to be a penalty for failing to do that. But my own country is also considering bringing that. So when a country puts in that legislation, it sends a long, legal, loud message to business that if you're in the industry of fossil fuels, you're going to have to get out and reinvent yourself as an energy company because we're moving out of that. So that's powerful. But we also need to take away the social license to operate of companies that aren't changing. And I think the reason I put Greta Thunberg here is because she has first single-handedly, but now as a generation, mobilized so many young people confronting business, uh, saying, we, we just don't give you a right to do this to our future. And at the essence of it is a huge inequality between the very present demands of shareholders, which are always in the room, and every company will say, well, you know, we are, we're almost bound. I mean, this is, we are legally bound to maximize shareholder returns. This is, this is just the way business happens. Shareholders, and what I would call future holders, Future holders who don't own shares uh, 
don't even have a voice because they are too young to vote or they're not yet born, but they've made themselves very felt, those who are already alive, in the school strikes for climate. And we need to find ways of making those future holders' interests more prevalent because every single decision that we're taking today or not taking has massive ramifications in their lives. So actually... Yes. I would love to do something right here. Okay. Can we have while that? I'm, have, do you want the house lights up for this? Or, uh, or do you think no, this will work. So no, while okay. I'm talking, I want you to pull out your mobile phone. And I want you to pull up on your phone a picture of some children you care about. It might be niece, nephew, your own children, grandchildren, your neighbours, because they're probably somewhere there in your phone. So while you're doing that... Here are my kids. These are my 10-year-old twins who Rod saw me biking on our triple tandem. Their names are Siri and Cass, and we're proud to go on the school strikes. Now, I want you to pull out your phone and hold up a picture of some children you care about, because if we all do this, they are the future, the future generations are actually with, oh, look at this. Oh, that's they fantastic. They are actually with us, look at this. Oh, that's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, wow. Well, more of you got phones. Wow. Keep going. There's more to come. This is one of the first ever <laughs> parliaments of the future. We have just assembled these kids who are in our pockets all the time, but are largely voiceless in the economy, and we are, we are giving them presence in this room. It's actually very beautiful to see this from here. And I invite you to think to yourself, what questions are these children asking us to realize we already should be asking? What answers do they already know? What are they asking us to, to realize and bring into being now as we hold a parliament of the future? And then always, as you keep them in your pocket, remember them in, they're in your pocket and dare to make their voices present in the room. That was so beautiful, thank you. I've actually done that occasionally with banks. <laughs> I was invited to speak to 500 bankers and it was at lunch so they didn't even have an option to say well they'll come along if I'm interested no they were having lunch and I was talking to them and I thought I'm going to dare to do this and I had the bankers pull their children out of their pocket and I wanted to say if you didn't bring your children out of your pocket I, well, I ask you to just wonder why that was so hard because perhaps when we're sitting in a financial institution there's a real disconnect between the values we hold so dear at home and bringing them into the room. And of course, what we all want are jobs that invite us to bring our whole selves mm. to work. But thank you for that beautiful moment of a parliament of future that actually, um, I felt that. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.